Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australia's city-shaping infrastructure. I'm Ilya Zak from series sponsor PwC Australia and I'll be joined for the main portion of our show by my co-host Adrian Dwyer, CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. First up though, we want to thank everyone for the incredible reception for our last episode. It was very widely shared on social media channels, which is a handy reminder to please continue sharing and also make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you happen to listen. For today's show, Adrian and I spoke to our first international guest for the series, Bernard Tabary, CEO of Keolis International. Quick side note, Bernard, if you're listening, I apologise for that pronunciation, but I'm confident that my attempt at a French accent would have been much more offensive. Keolis is one of the world's largest integrated transport companies, providing transport services in one form or another on four continents, with a significant portion of that activity occurring in Australia as well. In addition to being a hugely interesting person in his own right, as CEO of all of Keolis's operations outside of France, Bernard also has an unmatched level of insight on how various public transport procurement and service delivery systems compare internationally, and he very generously shared those thoughts with us when we sat down with him just a few weeks ago. So without further ado, here he is, Bernard Tabry. Uh, so Bernard Tabry, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Thanks for joining us. Um, I thought it might be useful as our first ever international guest on this podcast if you could maybe tell us who you are and what you do. Yes, with pleasure. Well, thank you for uh, your hospitality in this uh, beautiful place overlooking Darling Harbour and uh, such a fast-changing uh, environment. It's absolutely amazing. Um, well, look, I started uh, after a couple of years in the French Navy in the submarine forces, and I was uh, in love with shipping, so I worked in container shipping. We are very definitely going to come back to your time in the Navy as a submariner. That's good. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh uh, I went into container shipping and uh, for my great luck, uh, the company I was with, which was a French uh, shipping company, decided to purchase a company called Australia New Zealand Direct Line, a, shipping, a subsidiary of the shipping corporation of New Zealand, which was uh, operating uh, ships between Australia, New Zealand and North America. And they were headquartered in Los Angeles. And since they needed a well, they wanted to have a Frenchman in the operation that spoke English. Uh, I knew nothing about Australia or New Zealand or uh, North America, but at least I spoke English. So I moved to LA and was uh, busy for, uh, you know, seven years working on that trade between North America and Australia and New Zealand. When was this, sorry? That was between 89 and uh, 96. So, yeah, many, many years ago. But it was the, you know, New Zealand had reformed and was privatizing. That's when Shipping Corporation of New Zealand was sold. And that's when Australia was looking at, uh, uh, well, opening up the Trans-Tasman and, and uh, uh, envisaging or looking towards uh, uh, waterfront reform, which it did a few years after, um, and and in those days, I was seeing Australia looking up to New Zealand on reform that had taken place in New Zealand, but not yet uh, in Australia. And I was lucky to live here for a couple of years uh, and really enjoyed it thoroughly and saw a country which was so pleasant to live in, an environment which was so positive. Uh, so a very good memory of, uh, of, uh, of these days, which ended... Uh, basically, we were about to purchase uh, ANL from um, uh, the, uh, the Australian states when uh, the Jacques Chirac decided to resume the nuclear tests, uh, and that put an end to the project <laughs> of uh, the purchase of uh, ANL and uh, prompted my return to uh, the parent office. You in, didn't want to uh, stay for the France. nuclear tests. I didn't. <laughs> no, but my uh, I remember my staff demonstrating in, in, in front of the French consulate in uh, Market Street and and uh, you know encouraging me to join them which was, having been in the submarine forces, uh, a double embarrassment. Anyhow, uh, it was, uh, you know, there was real tension at the time, and it was understandably a, a, a very strong concern uh, for the Australians to have that and felt, look, if it's so harmless, why don't you hold those <laughs> tests uh, in the Atlantic Ocean next to Brest? Anyhow, that's a long, that's going back uh, a long, long time in history, but it gave me a good appreciation of... Um, of uh, the environment here, which I knew. Uh, and after 17 years in shipping, I uh, 
left shipping to work in uh, having returned to France in a plastic manufacturing company, a tier one um, automotive supplier for the um, which also had an environment division, which I ran and through that I learned to live or to work with municipalities and having done 17 years in container shipping and five years working with the municipalities it was logical that I would move to Keolis which operates um, you know public transport networks for uh, municipalities and that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years half of which on the French side and now for the last uh, eight years on the international side which gave me a chance to come back to Australia. Uh, so this is uh, the current position that I hold is one where I oversee the activities of Keolis, which are outside France. And, in, uh, and that brings me here regularly with enthusiasm. So everything outside of France is the international yes. business? Yes. Uh, yeah. It's, that's how we are split up. And basically Keolis today is about uh, 6 billion euros in revenue. It's about 65,000 staff. And it's half and half between what's in France and what is uh, outside France. And you're based out of London? I'm based in Paris, based in Paris. Uh, and on planes. <laughs> it is an enormous global operation. Can you talk us through? Because I was looking through the maps. It's just, it's it's incredible how many different places it's operating in. Can you talk us through some of the some of the locations? Because there's all the cities in France, and then also East Asia, and now it's growing in Australia yeah. as well. Uh, Keolis started in France, logically, where we ran, or we and we still run. Uh, public transport networks for municipalities like Lyon, like Lille, like Rennes, like Tours, like Dijon, like Bordeaux. Uh, and <clears throat> in those uh, cities, the municipalities uh, hand over the management of their public transport network as a whole, i.e. all the modes, and they challenge the operator at the time of the bid to come up with the best the lowest cost structure as well as the highest potential revenue and they basically judge the winner of uh, the bid on uh, the winner's ability to maximize the revenue and minimize the costs the operator takes revenue risk in those the operator takes the revenue risk the operator doesn't set the fares that's a political decision uh, we don't we go to tenders we don't go to elections right. uh, but we do take the revenue risk and and therefore we are encouraged in those contracts to uh, well, set the alarm clock half an hour earlier because we have not only to cut costs, but also to ensure that uh, the network is clean, that it is safe, of course, that it is uh, uh, user-friendly, that it reaches out to all categories, to tourists, etc., so that we maximize the revenue. And it has, gener- it has, if you like, influenced our DNA in as much as we therefore are very passenger focused rather than mode focused mm-hmm. in those uh, networks we will operate uh, subways uh, tramways uh, buses ferries etc but in the end we are passenger centric and mode agnostic i.e for us the mode is a mean to an end the end is the attractiveness of the city the uh, and and, uh, and how successful the network is in uh, helping the city uh, develop its agenda now we are very clear we do not define strategy, we execute strategy. The strategy is defined by the city, by the local pri- public transport authority. Again, they decide on the uh, fares, they decide on the routes, they uh, put um, their network out to tender, and the one that comes up with the best uh, response gets the uh, the win. Can I ask about that? Because it's, it's this really interesting model in France, because Keolis is, is owned by SNCF. Keolis has part, part owned seventy percent, mm-hmm. I think, and so does that. So, are there other effectively government-owned operators that are competing against you for a French government contract? Uh, well, indeed, from the distance, it may look uh, strange. First of all, Keolis was not always majority owned by SNCF. When, in fact, when I joined SNCF, when I joined Keolis, it was owned by 3I, a British uh, uh, private equity fund, uh, which had the majority shareholding and SNCF had the minority. And that stayed on for many years until SNCF brought to Keolis its parking activity, uh, which it felt could be managed better uh, by Keolis, which we took over. And bringing that to Keolis, they became the majority shareholder. Uh, but we've also, we've always had, uh, well, and for the last 12 years, we've also had CDPQ. Now, CDPQ, Caisse de dépôt et placement du Québec, is a uh, huge uh, 
fund with uh, managing over 300 billion Canadian dollars in uh, in assets of which probably uh, 100 in uh, infrastructure uh, and or more and more in infrastructure and uh, and therefore we are a private company right. and on our board uh, in fact, all the uh, board committees are chaired by representatives from CDPQ, and that's in the shareholders' agreement between CDPQ and SNCF to ensure for CDPQ to feel comfortable that they were just not going to deploy French governmental policies, but mm. what was good for the company, uh, the, 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 the company is run as a private company. Now, for the networks that we operate in France, the networks are owned by cities, not mm. by the French state. So it's not the same uh, regime. Yeah, it's not the same level of government. Uh, and um, we have the benefit of having SNCF of a major as a majority shareholder because they have a strong transport expertise, they have a, a very focused transport approach and they manage uh, you know, 15,000 trains a day uh, and a big high-speed and, and regular train, uh, 30,000 kilometer train network in France of which uh, 3,000 kilometers of uh, high-speed. Uh, but SNCF are very happy to, be, to have us as a, as a subsidiary because we are in the world of competition we 100% of the business that we manage is one through tenders. We don't have 1% of our business that would come just from, uh, uh, you know, a government award or anything. And and for SNCF, which is going to be faced with competition more and more, it's a good uh, learning experience. So I know it's it comes across as a, uh, it may come across as an odd uh, setting, uh, but it works well and uh, hopefully, um, and it delivers. I just want to step back for a moment. You you spoke about the multimodal concept, and that's mm -hmm. what is operating in Newcastle that Keolis down operate here. Um, I just there might be people listening to this podcast um, who are maybe on a bus or a light rail or a tram somewhere and don't know that that's operated uh, by you guys. So I wonder if you could just tell us about the Australian operations and, sure. and what you operate. Here. Indeed, well, we often. <laughs> more often than not, uh, do not operate under our name because legitimately uh, the city or the PTA wants the name of its network and not necessarily the name of its operator. Uh, and that's fully understandable and, and therefore people will not know where we operate. We were lucky to come into Australia first in Melbourne where we operate Yarra trams for uh, public transport Victoria uh, and that's been for the last uh, 10 years. Uh, so people see Yarra trams and they do not know that Keolis Downer is the uh, proud operator of the network since we have a joint venture and have had a joint venture from the start with uh, Downer, uh, a great uh, partner here in Australia. Uh, after that, we moved into uh, the Gold Coast where uh, we operate the Gold Coast Light Rail, uh, which we won as a contract uh, early on in its uh, construction. And then, so we work with um, uh, well, we work with the state of Queensland there uh, and in uh, we also operate um, uh, in, uh, well, we've purchased jointly with Downer a, an Australian uh, bus company called uh, ATE, which has now been renamed KD Bus, and they operate in Brisbane, in uh, Adelaide, in Perth. Um, and uh, with uh, with KD Bus, we have won the contract of Newcastle, which you were referring to, where for transport for New South Wales, we operate um, the uh, integrated network because uh, transport for New South Wales have decided to try that sort of uh, new contractual approach where the operator is charged with revenue and with costs. Uh, and in Newcastle, uh, we operate both the buses as well as the tram, as well as the uh, the ferries and so what, the on demand. What does that What does that do? Having an integrated, um, a single franchise for a geographic area, what does that um, What does that improve for the customer? Well, for the customer, the benefit hopefully is that uh, uh, first he will have he she will have a seamless travel, i.e. Uh, uh, same ticketing, same branding of the network, same signage, but also um, if you like, if one mode is suffering, then the substitution by another mode is going to be fluid and immediate because it is operated by the same uh, uh, company. Um, and uh, he will have, you know, what's important to a passenger is what, uh, A, first and foremost, safety, 
and that is sounds trite but it takes work to indeed guarantee that day in day out particularly on modes that are perhaps less safety conscious than uh, you know rail is very safety conscious perhaps less so than aviation but rail is very safety conscious and as you go further into the chain there hasn't been the same safety approach say on uh, buses well for passengers uh, delivering that safety is critical uh, so beyond that safety uh, focus having uh, that focus consistently on on-time performance cleanliness etc and a consistency of approach and feel for the network I think brings benefits to the passengers uh, the ultimate judge of that of course is uh, patronage uh, and you look at the trend so how is it man how, how is it manifested in the patronage have you seen growth? well the great news in now uh, on that we need a level of humility also uh, i.e we operate in a system which, or in, if you like, in a general environment. And basically, uh, the director of the play or the show is the Public Transport Authority. We are one of the cast members. We may be an important one, but we work to a tune that is set by the PTA. So whenever referring to successes in Newcastle, I wouldn't put everything on the operator and its skills because, uh, you know, the state has decided to invest uh, the proceeds of the sale of the port into uh, the rejuvenation of the city. Uh, there's been heavy investment going into the tram. Uh, the uh, city council has worked hard also together with uh, with the state. So uh, I wouldn't want to call it the kill is down the success only. It's, uh, it's an overall success, which we are a part of. And then the increases in patronage are in the double digit figures in terms of, uh, you know, which is very unusual in patronage because you're above 10% in, uh, um, in, uh, in a year and a half on the uh, increase in patronage. That is great news. So how much freedom do you get to set timetables so that services meet each other, set the parameters of the service? Is that all set by government or do you get freedom to innovate around those areas? We get freedom to suggest to put forward our proposals and uh, very often they are listened to but the ultimate decision rests with the state uh, which will approve or not route changes um, uh, timetable adjustments etc because again as I said they go to election we go to tender so we've got to demonstrate to them the value of the proposals that we make bo both from a cost perspective as well as a revenue perspective as well as a customer satisfaction perspective to give you an example in Newcastle um, with the you know f expected investment in the tram uh and with a, uh, a look at the bus routes as they were established, the bus routes hadn't been changed for decades. And uh, those bus routes needed to change because population had moved, because working habits had, cha had changed, and because uh, the tram was going to come up. So in, our, in the tender, we came up with a proposal of a redesign of the network, establishing some trunk lines, uh, which are clock-faced in their schedule. That is, people can see a bus like regularly every 10 or 15 minutes, whereas on the other routes, it'll be less frequent. Uh, and and the, the state was calling for such input from the bidders, which was only... Uh, provided after thorough review of uh, the population, its traveling habits, its expectations, uh, etc. So uh, you see, in the end, it's an ultimate, uh, it's a collective uh, process where the decision in the end rests with the funder, i.e. Uh, the public transport authority. Have you done that kind of thing in other cities around the world? Oh, yes, we've done it. Uh, well, in fact, we started that, uh, that process, which is one that we've been doing for like almost uh, 10 years is one that we had started in fact in uh, in Lyon in France where there's 100 bus lines and uh, there with the construction of the metro with the construction of the tramway and also with the shifts in population it was obvious that uh, the bus lines as they existed could be optimized and without putting more money into producing more kilometers but by really looking how well and, and we have a whole process if you look, look if you like of looking at uh, how a particular area is currently served what is the potential 
patronage that it could have and what is the difference between that potential patronage and its current usage. And there are some areas which we identify as being overserved and certain areas which we, optim- which we understand as being underserved. And that's, that thorough analysis allows us to come up with a redesign of the network Again, keeping the same level of uh, production uh, through that, and and it's been extremely successful uh, in the cities where we've done it. Um, so we do not increase costs. In fact, we reduce costs, but optimize the uh, the patronage in figures that are between seven, eight, ten, fifteen percent, uh, and great passenger satisfaction. Now people have to get used to it. If you take the example of Lyon, we did the, the change in 2011 overnight. We renumbered all the bus lines of the city, a big communication campaign, of course, all that in line with the public transport authority for several months ahead. And overnight, everything was changed. And uh, looking back now, we're delighted that it's uh, it's happened so well. And we've done it in other cities. We've done it in Bordeaux. We're doing it in Lille. uh, And and therefore, we've offered it uh, here in uh, Newcastle where it was called for. And it's... uh, These things are always hard to sell to the public because, as you can imagine, people are uh, like their traditional bus, uh, and they are they do n- they need to understand the value of change, but they do. You've got quite an interesting mix of those kinds of opportunities in Australia. In the Gold Coast, it's one one mm-hmm. uh, one line. Mode. In Uh, Melbourne, it's the entire tram network, and in Newcastle, it's all all the public transport in a geographic area. Are you? Do you see any differences in how you're incentivized to to make those improvements between those three those three networks? Um, well, yeah, the contract models are very different from mm. one to the other. I.e., on the Gold Coast, we're in a PPP, yeah, uh, public-private partnership, so it's a long-term contract. Um, and then we work within a consortium, uh, uh, you know, an SPV that was formed with the construction company, with a rolling stock provider, etc. And and uh, and that consortium is the one that deals with uh, with the state. In uh, Yarra Trams, it's a contract where we just manage the uh, the tram network, but then we have a uh, we have an incentive on the ridership, uh, so on uh, on uh, patronage. I would say. Uh, our job is not to specify the type of contract that we're going to work on. In the same way as I've said, we are passenger-centric and mode agnostic. We are passenger-centric and contract type agnostic. We'll work in a PPP. We'll work in a growth contract. We'll work in a net contract. First things first, we need to listen to what the Public Transport Authority is looking for. Is it looking for the maximization of uh, revenue? Is it looking for the maximization of uh, patronage? Is it looking for reinvestment? And then come up with, uh, if you like, the proposals that meet those expectations. And you do find very different environments. Some authorities are very financially constrained and really want to absolutely cut costs and possibly minimize service, etc. Others don't have the same obligation and absolutely need to, uh, uh, you know, evolve and push their city into a, a, a new kind of environment. So there's no one size fits it all. The one size that fits all is, again, listening to the expectations and, and understanding what the needs are. We're lucky to work with about 300 cities in the world. Uh, so we've we've seen various types of expectations and uh, and uh, work well with cities in designing what suits them. I kind of um, implicit in Ilya's question is that it seems of what you're saying in France, there's this sort of a dominant model that's emerged around working for the municipality, doing all of the transport within it. And Ilya's listed off three different models in Australia that all seem quite bespoke to the, to the circumstance. I'm interested by, is that, There must be an, a, uh, a lack of efficiency in having all these different approaches for you as a as a contract. Have all these different models applied in Australia? Is that a having that variety of contracts requires agility, and at the same time, when we operate the trams in Melbourne, by DNA we know that it is essential that we do not operate the trams in isolation, but that we operate the trams in conjunction with the metro and with the buses. Uh, you know, the trams have, uh, and, and people don't use one mode, they use several modes. So uh, we don't manage the other modes, but it is our 
we are really morally obligated to work well with Metro and with the buses and anyhow above us there is a public transport authority that uh, uh, is acts as the uh, the conductor good news having that experience of working all the modes in many cities uh, we know that uh, transport in itself is not an end it's a mean and it's uh, and, and and the the, the mode itself is a mean uh, to uh, the greater fluidity, attractiveness, etc., of a city. So uh, we are a cast member of a big play. We we need to understand the big picture and work well with the other actors. Are uh, there? I mean, again, it is a unique position that Keolis has, being in so many jurisdictions around the world. Are there things that uh, that you know you like more in other jurisdictions that we could learn from here? And are there things that we could that that uh, Australia is doing particularly well that that could be in those other jurisdictions? Well, there's many things that Australia does very well, uh, particularly. Uh, I'm looking for that compliment, Sandy. Yeah. You've got to start with the good, good one first, and then. <laughs> All right, get to I'll what give you a couple of better. compliments, but they're not they're, they're easy to make. I.e., Australia and and you guys play a big role in that, but I think really recognizes the importance of uh, infrastructure and public transport infrastructure in its uh, evolution. You know, I was lucky to live in Sydney, well, almost 30 years ago. Um, and the Sydney that I see today has nothing to do with the Sydney that I see uh, that, that, that I saw then. And uh, wow! Uh, so there's clearly uh, an awareness of the country and of the states and of the cities of the need to evolve from a individual car usage as the sole mode of transportation. It has its merits, but it also has its limits. Uh, so on that compliments to a country that uh, has that view, puts money into it uh, in a governance which sure in absolute standards if you look at them from here may have their flaws may have its flaws but uh, uh, looking at what's happening uh, in other countries is rather democratic in the choices that are made uh, I have heard you say that before in an, I think you said there's an obsession here with self-flagellation of uh, of uh, infrastructure delivery is it noticeably sort of is there a noticeable self-hatred here that you don't see in other jurisdictions uh, for, for when the, it comes the, to when it comes to self-flagellation on transport, Australia is not the only one. I see, it. for <laughs> example, uh, in the UK also, where I see the uh, you know the UK investing heavily into uh, Thameslink and uh, Crossrail, and yet. The projects may be delayed by a year or two. I was going to say, it seems entirely normal to me. <laughs> you know, so I'm from the UK. We yeah. There's always a constant beat up about, you know, this so, project being over and then you get to Australia and it's in dollars, not pounds, but it's broadly the same conversation. Yeah, but look, you know, if you go back to the UK, are people whining about uh, Isambard Brunel being uh, a year late on delivering uh, trains to, uh, to the West? Um, are people going to look back on, uh, even here, uh, are they going to look back on, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, the tram here in Sydney as having been uh, late? Yes, it's late, it's hard, etc. But in the end, uh, 30 years, 40 years from now, people will enjoy the benefits of it. Uh, and and that's, where, that's why I find that uh, self-flagellation is, uh, is indeed, to a foreign visitor, a little surprising because in relative terms, wow, there's so many countries that envy you so it do, in the other countries that you operate in the Keolis international business you don't see the same degree of um of focus on those you know time and cost blowouts that we hear about here not necessarily in the same proportion or or in a different way you know we're happy to we're lucky to operate for example in china with a great partner in shanghai with shanghai metro now the chinese are very good at keeping their schedules uh, but they do have uh, challenges also but you don't have the same level of uh, self-flagellation uh, as uh, as you have here we operate in um, india uh, where uh, also there have been uh, drifts in uh, various projects. But again, there, uh, you know, construction itself is hampered by, say, environmental constraints. You need to go to the environmental tri tribunal before you uh, cut a tree. Well, uh, 
you have to respect that and it's called tradition and culture and you're not judgmental on it it has its impact uh, but it doesn't generate the same um, exasperation as it does uh, here indeed in this country things are very public on costs on timing and uh, people are used to voice their concerns it's logical that they are and that they do and there's a free press that uh, uh, points things and usually points to the flaws uh, perhaps a little more than <coughs> to the uh, benefits how do those successes. Uh, how do because the thing that they usually point to is cost mm-hmm. how do those co- again it's a unique position that Kyolish is in to be able to compare those costs how do the costs compare here to to some of the other jurisdictions of comparable wealth well clearly the costs here are high mm-hmm. there's, <coughs> there's no doubt about that they are high on construction they are high on operation um, and if you if you take out wages because that's not you know, wages are higher here. That's 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 what we have. If you take out wages, are other things also more expensive, or or is is it is it really just a function of people cost more here? Well, in a staff-intensive activity such as ours, uh, wages are you know the bus operation yeah. sixty-five to seventy percent of your costs. Uh, but yeah, uh, wages are high. Uh, but there's a culture also of, uh, you know, the cost of material, which is imported as being high, but also the, the, the process itself. Uh, there's uh, there's a, a rather stringent governance, um, a heavy contractual approach with um, strong legal input, which also is uh, costly. The bids themselves are rather expensive. Uh, well, but is the, the legal component and all these other uh, components of a bid, are they having a material impact on your willingness to participate in the market or or how much risk you're willing to take on? Yes, they do have an impact because, uh, of course, bids are expensive in, uh, in Australia. They are very expensive to run and, and probably... Uh, more expensive than in other countries. So, what, what can we do to that, though? Because that's something that's investigated quite a lot. Bid costs. I think IPA has even written a paper on bid costs it, at some yeah, stage. Yeah, although they're the same for everyone. So, so if it's not deterring competition, then you know it's it's worthy of the question of is it is it as big as an issue as big an issue as it is made out to be with BMI? Well, indeed, uh, they do not deter bidders at the moment to go for the bids they are thrown back into the system exactly because, yeah we so pay for it at some stage at some stage indeed yeah. they are paid for there are avenues also to uh, if you like simplify things or minimize litigations one of the things that we have uh, well which was born i think in australia was uh, around collaborative partnership and and how how do you through collaborative partnership allow bigger projects to be designed with the ultimate goal in mind rather than the individual um, interests and how do you minimize potential litigation by focusing on uh, the ultimate goal in the big picture. Uh, this is uh, a very positive approach huh, that that helps uh, reduce legal costs because then uh, the partners are encouraged to go into uh, you know, uh, let's have that broad view together and let's find ways to avoid litigation as the project is delivered. So which jurisdiction is the model? Where are we looking to? Who should we be copying? Ah, um, I wish there was also one size that uh, fits all. Uh, I'm not sure that there is the ultimate uh, A-class type of uh, environment. I think there are... Just to avoid bias, you have to pick one outside of France if you pick one. Ah, yes, indeed. (laughs) Uh, no, but the, you know, you have sound procurement models. Uh, well, I have observed, for example, take the UK with the rail franchising, which is under heavy criticism. Uh, well, uh, I observe the rail franchising UK system in the UK, and despite all its flaws, I find that it has delivered on the increase in patronage, on safety, on the modernization of the network, on the capacity of the network in a constrained environment to carry more and more people. So I, uh, yes, the process has its flaws, but it's regularly reviewed and uh, altered. So I think it's much better than the image it uh, mm. it has. And One of the problems yeah. you can't prove the counterfactual. You can't you can't say what it would have been like had British Rail still run. Well, people love to talk about British Rail as uh, you know a reference up to 1995. 
Well, I was lucky to, as a schoolboy, my parents sent me to the to England for a year when I was so I was in a boarding school, and uh, I remember uh, taking the train uh, regularly. Uh, that's a long way back, but British Rail wasn't a dream in terms of <laughs> uh, the, the delivery of service. So. Uh, in relative terms, again, I look at and uh, look at the statistics of the rail delivery group in the UK. But look at uh, at, the, at what uh, uh, rail has delivered uh, in the UK, and to me, overall, it is a success in both relative terms, i.e., from one year to the other in the UK, but also compared to other countries in Europe, be it uh, Germany, France, etc. Not to take a, <laughs> a French example. We don't appear to have, as they do in the UK, one of the major parties talking about renationalising the railways. Um, it seems here every time a franchising comes up for renewal, it's sort of accepted that it will be a franchise. It's just how deep or how much deeper that franchise will go than it did in the past. If you think to the Melbourne Rail, Yarra Trams, um, and we're even announcing new franchises in South Australia recently and in here in Sydney, the remaining parts of the bus network. Is there something we're doing different here that's driving greater depth of private sector involvement versus those places where maybe there's danger that the the tide's coming back in? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. What I observe is that, indeed, there's not the same level of questioning here in, uh, in Australia. It's always been a debate. But in the end, what people have observed, I believe, is that uh, jobs have not been cut from those processes. And, uh, um, you know, I remember in Sweden, uh, to give you an example, we were we were operating these uh, half of the buses in uh, Stockholm uh, from a company that was basically the local STA, i.e., uh, originally a state-owned or a city-owned bus company that was privatized and that we purchased. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we won in Gothenburg a few years later uh, a bid to run half of the buses also, and against this time the municipal company. And it struck me at the time when we were mobilizing for that new contract in Gothenburg that our union representatives on our board in Stockholm said, why are you worrying about convincing staff uh, of this uh, privatization? We will go and talk to our colleagues in Gothenburg, Mm -hmm. which they did. Um, And they said, we will go and talk to them about uh, what we've observed and uh, what it's been like, i.e., uh, you know, a positive lesson. And they did go out to Gothenburg, and that mobilization went very well, and that transition happened very well, because people saw that it wasn't going, they weren't going from the paradise of a municipal-run company to uh, the hell of a privately-owned company. Uh, we need people badly, whether we are publicly owned or privately owned they run the they they run the operations daily uh, they have compar- they have the same working hours they need to reach out to passengers and uh, and and hopefully uh, i don't think anyone has seen in australia that people have suffered from uh, things being franchised what if industrial relations is one of the uh, objectives of i don't want to say privatization but some kind of um, franchising contract would that be less appealing then for a bidder to take on as a as a responsibility if one of the goals is to resolve a challenging industrial relations environment no the question is uh, we always come back to the same question what is the agenda of um, the city uh, and if the city is keen on uh, evolving its its industrial relations and feels that change is going to be an accelerator of that evolution and if it is so understood uh, well, we need to come up with, uh, you know, the right processes. And you never work against uh, the people. You work with them. Um, poor industrial relations uh, usually prosper first on uh, poor management. Mm. It's very easy to go out and blame the unions. It's quite convenient to say, oh, they're, off, they're awful, they're difficult, etc. But usually uh, our experience of bad industrial relations is uh, at our doorstep, i.e. Uh, when you now, and, and, and it takes years to evolve this, but if you are in a them and us uh, mentality, in an antagonistic one, uh, that's not something that is solved overnight. If we are faced with that sort of agenda, yes, these things are not solved overnight. They don't scare us. And believe me, if there is one thing that we do not try to export from France, it is the French <laughs> industrial relations. I was going to bring that up because if there's there's no better training ground for dealing with challenging industrial relations environment than uh, 
than French transport, especially. I remember when they launched the driverless metro lines in in Paris. Someone asked him, um, "So is is this just to avoid uh, protests?" And he said, "That's not what this is about. It's efficiency. It's safety. But yes, it's true. Line one and fourteen are very unlikely to have strikes uh, when <laughs> affect their operations. And it's uh, you know, it's there's a there there are positive ways to deal with it, obviously." And there are combative ways to deal with it, and I guess that's. So you're saying it's not. It is something that you would. Um, it's not something that would scare you off from a from a potential contract or anything like that. But it's also not something that's necessarily ideal to be associated with any franchising. Maybe that's the. That's it. Yeah, and and you know, Australia and France have one thing in common, which is a history of. Uh, Challenging industrial relations, um, and as I said, I was in shipping in Australia, uh, which is not known to be a sector particularly uh, uh, easy in in its uh, industrial relations. Uh, so, uh, I, your your summary is is absolutely the good one. We, uh, uh, you know, it's it's it doesn't scare us off. Um, and then at the same time, it is it, if it is the issue that has to be one of the strong issues in a particular network that has to be taken uh, on, then we look at it and and uh, we work with the unions on making things evolve and with the cities, of course. And um, one of the other things that sometimes franchising is used for is to inject innovation or new technologies into systems. Um, we heard here in New South Wales, the government announced that it would... Um, franchise the remaining buses but also introduce over time a fully electric bus fleet you, you operate some electric or hydrogen buses more, than, more and more <laughs> well, and, and could you talk to us about how's that different from an operational perspective what are the challenges what's emerging what's the future it's very interesting because it it's uh, it indeed it's a big trend particularly in europe and well even more so in China. I think a city like Shenzhen has 22,000 electric buses already. Uh, and uh, and in Europe, we are currently on several tenders. We have uh, just last month won a big uh, tender in uh, central Holland, uh, Eiselwert, to run uh, 300 electric vehicles. Uh, we have just won another one in Bergen for 160 electric uh, buses. Now, several challenges around that. First, you don't run a bus, you run a system. Um, and so as an operator, you need to approach it not from the angle of just uh, the bus itself, uh, but basically, where is your depot? Uh, where is it on the grid? Is the grid allowing you to get the sort of uh, power that you need for uh, charging? Uh, what about uh, what sort of on ch what sort of uh, charging are you going to go for? Are you going to go for opportunity charging, or are you going to go for overnight uh, depot charging? And and what impact does that have on your drivers um, and your on your rostering? Uh, and then of course the uh, uh, if you like the skills. On maintenance are very different between, uh, you know, a thermal engine and uh, an electric one. Uh, challenges on the financing also. What uh, battery life are you going to have? What uh, uh, what sort of uh, what sort of uh, residual value are you going to have for the buses that uh, that you uh, that you buy? Um, have they? But from a life cycle, total life cycle cost, have they reached parity? With with diesel buses, or still it still requires some kind of subsidy. Well, uh, they have. Our experience is that they have not yet reached parity with uh, with uh, thermal engines with uh, regular buses, but they are coming down, and and the two are uh, coming closer to one another. Uh, but then you see also that uh, uh, you know the very uh, and and you're talking about subsidies. Public transport is everything really, requires a subsidy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Every, every, well, subsidies are part of the economic model of the uh, the industry. But then suddenly you can do things with an electric bus that you wouldn't do with a regular bus. So we have that line in uh, Stockholm where the uh, bus stops in the library itself uh, because it's an electric bus, and uh, yeah, uh, and and so you can come up with uh, innovations that you wouldn't have thought of uh, and so you can think outside of the box. So are they coming to you and saying we want electric buses or are you propose or are they just putting out a bus tender and Keolis says well we could do an electric bus and have all these features. And I'm going to ask a second part of that question which is 
Who's deciding hydrogen or electric? Well, two good questions, really. In the end, it's always the city or the PTA that will make the final decision because they have to foot that bill and it's a, it is a political decision. Now, uh, in a bid, we're at, uh, in some situations invited to offer alternatives and then mm-hmm. we can come up with alternative A, alternative B and highlight the pros and cons of the alternatives we uh, bring up. As for hydrogen buses, the hydrogen buses is still, well, f- first very rare and 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 the cost of the system is still far greater than the electric one the figures that we hear are that around 20% of the fleets of electric buses could be hydrogen ones uh, tomorrow and hydrogen in the end is a, is another way to store electricity yeah, um, and, yeah I and consider them both to be electric buses it's yeah. just one the storage is in a battery one it's in a in hydrogen that's it and and you know the and the price of hydrogen is suddenly going to go uh, down uh, but as it, it, again, it's horses for courses, and and what sort of uh, benefits is the city or the state uh, looking at? What sort of subsidies uh, uh, are being thrown? We feel that Australia there has a lot of potential because we sense a, a high level of interest. Uh, perhaps things haven't gone as far or as fast as in uh, other countries for obvious reasons, but we sense a high level of interest. These days. For for, um, for electric buses. For electric, covering both hydrogen Correct. and battery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And and um, in the buses, the, the networks that you are operating with, um, electric buses, are you finding that they're able to um, deliver the same sort of... Um, sort of longevity of routes and you're getting enough kilometres out, like those kind of sort of more practical day-to-day challenges? Yes, they, they do. Ah, the service level they can provide is is uh, really high and very pleasant indeed as a passenger when you ride an electric bus it, and for the driver also, by the way, it's uh, which is uh, uh, important. Uh, but it, it's noise-wise uh, and... and Acceleration-wise, etc., it has uh, many positive features. Now, the big challenges come from the topography, i.e., are you on the, you know, flat or a hilly uh, section? Are you, what sort of air conditioning are you going to have, and what sort of uh, temperature are you going to find? So the performance is really one of, uh, of, uh, you know, that varies depending on lines and depending on on the circumstances. It's all these contracts that Adrian mentioned before, they're coming up in in Australia. Are we likely to see, unless it's, you know, explicitly requested, uh, are we likely to see um, uh, the companies like Keolis saying, here's an electric bus solution, it might cost you a little bit more, or is it is it uh, still just too far out there that it really needs to be, the, the, the uh, government will really need to say, we want electric buses? I feel that the impulse will really need to call from, to come from the government's call yeah. uh, okay. at this stage, yeah. One of the, so I guess we've been, we're kind of in the present time now, I think we also want to pick your brain a little bit about uh, what's coming up in the future. Um, again, because of Keolis's uh, unique crystal ball. So, uh, w- what do you think the sort of major developments will be in in public transport that you're that you're seeing coming up over the kind of medium term, um, both in terms of the contracting and also maybe technological developments that that we will see on the ground in the next in the next decade or two. Well, I see, you know, uh, great developments uh, coming up. That is, there's a first. There is a universal need for mobility uh, and be it demography be it uh, economic growth be it uh, environmental concerns uh, wow people need mobility and it's a very important term that mobility that no people aren't talking about transport necessarily anymore and I saw even on Keolis's website that you're they're talking about uh, micro mobility little yeah, e-scooters and stuff like that it's and a it's a new it's a new paradigm well, and, and, and that new paradigm is fueled by great innovations like take digital already, which is the fuel to uh, great productivity achievements, information uh, uh, capabilities. Uh, really, today, yesterday, perhaps, uh, you know, public transport was probably more uh, a curse uh, than a choice, i.e. you really had no alternative and you had to be treated like cattle on the train where you're going to be squeezed, go from A to B, and uh, uh, and 
tomorrow you'll have the option. First, you'll be treated not as uh, an, an anonymous uh, piece of cattle, but uh, as an individual, mm-hmm. because you'll be recognized as uh, uh, Joe, Jane, uh, etc. And you have these preferences, etc. You can you'll have a lot uh, far better information on alternatives, and you can decide to walk today. You can decide to ride tomorrow. You can decide to ride share. You can decide to be on a scooter. You can decide to be on a bicycle. You and is, what's Kiolis's role in all of that? Because we hear a similar thing from Uber that they don't really care if it's rideshare, e-bike, plane, whatever. They just want they just want to be the the either the booker or sometimes even the operator of that service. Does Keolis see the see itself in the same position? Well, we see ourselves as uh, if you like first we're not everything to everybody, but what we are used to is dealing with public entities who are uh, and 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 one is talking when it comes to mobility, also about the sharing of space in uh, in general. And the decisions on the spa- sharing of space have to come from a sort of an arbitrator of how that space is, uh, is shared. Uh, Uber at the moment that you're referring to is being uh, challenged by TFL uh, because they have apparently tried to take them on or or uh, take the hard line and show them that they were perhaps stronger than the city. Well, the city is telling them that, uh, no, the city retains the right to uh, make that choice. Now, we as uh, Keolis are used to dealing with these public entities and listening to what their goals are. There's another interesting development in, uh, in light rail mm-hmm. that, uh, well, it's no, there's discussion and it, look, I'll be honest, I don't fully understand it people are talking about a trackless tram which to me sounds like a bus is it a bus is it repl- going to come and replace our light rails soon what's the w- can you, does Keolis have them what do you think of the whole trackless tram uh, suggestion well the trackless tram has been um in existence for, for many years and there was a do you mean a, since buses or is it a no no no, no. <laughs> uh, trams uh, you know there was a trams on the tires yeah uh, which was manufactured well in fact in Clermont-Ferrand the city of Michelin uh, the tire manufacturer the tram was a tram on tires yeah r- rather the Paris Paris Metro runs on tires. Oh, as several well. several several lines yeah but in Lyon we also have a yeah you do have a few well it's but they're on a track. Yeah, they're on the track, yeah. uh, but they're on tires. We are, yeah. uh, some of our Lyon lines are on the uh, tires also. So that's uh, it's it uh, it works on. Uh, uh, if you like, it's an interesting development now. Uh, the trackless tram. One of the benefits of uh, of trams is for people to see well with the tracks they know where it goes yeah and it makes it it is one of the positive uh, features it'll be interesting to see um uh, you know these trackless inverted commas uh, trams yet because of their size and because of their the uh, the number of options is n- not going to be multiplied by 10 huh? Uh, so it doesn't come through on uh, audio, but based on your facial expression, I'm detecting a degree of skepticism of the trackless tram concept as replacing all the light rails around. Yeah, perhaps I'm too much of a dinosaur, and I need to be convinced. But I don't know. Um, if you like our experience of the trams on tires that we have seen in uh, in, uh, in Clermont-Ferrand in France, or our experience of uh, of semi-trackless trams like we saw them in Nancy or in Caen has been one of a replacement by uh, trams on, on tracks, fixed tracks yeah, right. on fixed tracks um, what about um, uh, one of the uh, I guess they can be considered a competitor is uh, MTR the Hong Kong uh, arrangement lets them be much more involved in um, in developing the, the the value around a station than they are allowed to be in other jurisdictions. Do you see more of a role for public transport operators like Keolis and MTR in doing that kind of thing in, in uh, other jurisdictions? We see our job more as, uh, if you like, being able to highlight that value creation and offer ways to ensure that that value creation helps uh, develop the uh, the network we're not in models ourselves where we are 
developers of commercial or residential properties from that. We see how it's successfully it's how successful it's been in 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 some places, but at the same time, we've also seen the resistance of some cities feeling that this was a prerogative which was theirs and that they were not keen to let go of. Um, so it's not a field in which we have uh, into which we've moved. Okay. So Bernard, earlier on, you said about um, a couple of years in the navy, and um, I was just interested to understand. So you were down in submarines, or was the? No, no, I was. Well, I did dive uh, several times when I was in the submarine forces. Luckily, but I was uh, more in headquarters and in uh, staff. Uh, so I did dive on uh, diesel submarines as well as uh, as well as uh, uh, nuclear submarines. And I'm delighted to see that uh, France and Australia are developing that great partnership over the 12 submarines that are going to be built in uh, Adelaide, a show of, uh, you know, particularly having lived that period of strain of the relationship between the two countries, uh, feeling that the level of confidence is such now that, uh, you know, these, the last submarine I think will be delivered in 2035 and it'll probably uh, be at sea until 2085. So you have, uh, you have uh, 60 years of, of collaboration because you need the supply chain for that uh, manufacturing to happen. You need the confidence between the two countries for those uh, uh, skills to be, uh, you know, exchange and developed. So I, I find it's great news. And it brings me back to that period with emotion because submariners are a great uh, category of people. Those who go at sea in those, uh, uh, on those boats are, uh, you know, work well together. I think nuts. I think nuts is the, the best yeah, way to nuts. describe them. <laughs> yeah, Three months uh, underwater in a tube is, uh, is I think, uh, I think you have to have something a little bit off to be, to be comfortable with that. I'm amazed that people can do it. Is yeah. that you? You were in the nuclear subs yeah. that were there for that long. Well, you see people there who are uh, considerate of one another. They live in a very constrained environment, and they uh, they live a hard thing, but they live it together. So that's a uh, uh, it's uh, you know, and and they are uh, they understand the purpose of uh, which is a common purpose, and mm. it uh, it drives them. Uh, so it's. Uh, uh, it's a strange environment, if indeed not uh, common, but uh, Australia has a strong uh, history of, of uh, you know, uh, good skilled submarine forces and a good skilled navy. And I'm uh, delighted for the country that it's, uh, uh, you know, investing in its navy as it is. With, with the passion I've seen you speak about this, I get the feeling that there's Keolis are going to go into operating submarines next. Mm. No, we, uh, we just operate ferries at the moment in, uh, in Newcastle and we uh, love that. Um, and then, well, they're doing a great job, but I was on the ferries in uh, Newcastle with pleasure talking to the, uh, uh, to the skipper and, uh, and the crew and uh, seeing what a good job they do. So you're getting back to shipping then? Now Absolutely, yes. Full circle. Well, uh, you know, r r ferries and, and um, the river transport, etc., is uh, one of the uh, features of uh, mobility, uh, an appealing one. And hey, uh, Sydney is a good uh, proof of that. A yeah, good spot for it with the harbour. Yeah. Um, We've asked all of our guests the same question at the end of the interviews. Um, so I'm going to ask the same to you, which is what's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why? I really like the, uh, if you like, I'm very fond of, because I was lucky to run a uh, the, the, the network in Lyon for a few years, which has both trams, metros, uh, buses, etc. And I really enjoyed very much operating the driverless metros that we have because I observed how we were able to inject capacity at very short notice, how we were able to deliver a great service to passengers uh, because the regularity of uh, the service was extremely high because the uh, uh, you know the kids could go in the front and then uh, look at uh, how the service was running and I could see uh, its hours of operation also being easily uh, extended so I felt that uh, it was technologically quite amazing bringing straight 
uh, and 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 great uh, benefits to passengers in terms of uh, safety, uh, on time performance, etc. So it's rather expensive, but it, it's uh, uh, it's one of my uh, preferred modes then in the field of uh, those we operate. Most people that we've asked that question of go to maybe the built form or they like tunnels when they're being constructed because they may be an engineer by background. It's interesting you went to something that's it's not really to do with the transport or the infrastructure, it's the customer. Mm-hmm. That that's the that's the thing that you focus on there is actually the school kids being at the front of the well, he went to, he's not an engineer, he went to business school, so it's... Right, uh, <laughs> well, but, but, but also, remember, our motto is uh, think like a passenger. And I am full of admiration for all the technical skills that go into designing the models that we operate. But in the end, uh, their only purpose is to satisfy passengers. And happy passengers make happy cities and cities that uh, thrive and uh, move forward. So, uh, again, think like a passenger for us is not just a concept. It's something that we go back to. uh, And so one of the... good modes to achieve this is a driverless metro. But luckily, there's many others. uh, And uh, we'll keep operating them with pride and joy. Well, that seems like a great note to finish on. Bernard, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks thank for you. Down. That's it for today. Thanks as always to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship and hosting of the series. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to Inside Infrastructure and leave us a rating or a comment on LinkedIn. If you have any guest suggestions, then please feel free to send us those either to Ilya or myself. Uh, we've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bergerson, Michael Player and Brendan Pearce.